grow up? Or who do you want to be when you grow up? Or who do you want to be as, as you grow up? Still, maybe you're still not, not satisfied with where you are. Yeah, yeah, not grown up. Yeah, for, even if you are grown up, maybe you want to be something else. Uh, for my part, I, I think what I wanted to be depended on where we went on vacation. And I always kind of caught the bug. So uh, the first thing I wanted to be, I, I remember wanting to be, was an astronaut because we visited the Stennis Space Station in Houston, Texas. But the only problem that I realized with being an astronaut is you have to be uh, really smart. And I just decided I didn't want to be that smart. Um, and that's, that's just, uh, I could be, but I just don't want to be that smart. Uh, then I remembered uh, that I wanted to be a zookeeper so I could hang out with all the animals at the zoo. And, and hanging out with the kangaroos and cleaning up their poop seemed more of my wavelength. And then zookeeper didn't work out for me. And then we went to SeaWorld. And I wanted to be a whale trainer. You guys remember that movie, Free Willy? Uh, yeah, it's about a boy who's trying to free an orca from humans, played by an orca captured by humans. It's kind of an ironic movie. There's also, there's a Netflix documentary that dashed all my dreams of being a whale trainer called Blackfish. And if you want to be really sad and depressed by SeaWorld, go and watch that documentary. Uh, then when I was in high school, I wanted to be a professional soccer player. I had my dreams set on it. In fact, when I was a senior, my English teacher made us write a paper about what we wanted to be. Okay, what, what profession you want to go into. So I wrote about being a soccer player. And when I turned in my paper, she, um, well, you know, she advised me to maybe uh, write about something more uh, attainable. Um, I think she really cared about me. Uh, but if she only knew that the only reason I'm not a professional soccer player is they just haven't noticed me yet, right? They, if she only knew that, then she'd be really proud of me. They just haven't noticed me. We all have a vision of who we want to be. Uh, we start off with one, and as we grow older, it changes, usually. Uh, and we have a vision for who we want to be, a vision for how we want our families to be, who we want our children to be how we want our society to be, and, and we even have a vision of who we want our church to be, don't we? And a lot of the time, that vision of who we want to be, and, and especially as it relates to the church, just isn't that biblical. There's nothing wrong, right, with finding a church that has healthy practices, right? You, you want them to sing healthy scriptural songs, you want there to be healthy biblical preaching, but that's a different thing from needing a church to just meet your preferences, right? Maybe the music is too loud. Maybe it's too soft. Maybe it's too fast. Maybe it's too slow. Uh, maybe the preacher isn't animated enough. Or maybe the preacher is too animated, right? We bring all of these preferences to church. And we come to church with the mindset of, as long as this church meets my view of X, Y, X, y and Z, as long as my preferences on X, Y, and Z are met, we're happy. I mean, we're seeing this play out in real time with churches splitting over masks and COVID and all that kind of stuff happening all over America. We assume that our stance on these issues is what really, really, really matters rather than considering that we might be called to a greater purpose. That the vision that we have for who we want our church to be might be different from the expectations we actually have. 
So the question remains, who are we to be? In all the realms and institutions that we find ourselves in society and in culture and under governments and in families and in marriages, things that we've seen in 1 Peter, who are we to be? What undergirds us in all of these things? What carries us through the constantly changing nature of these things? Who are we to be? That's the question. Those are the questions that I want to be asking and answering as we come to the Word of God this morning. So let's read together 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll read it, verses 8 to, 8 to 12. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In 2015, one of the most divisive issues ever to face America went viral across the internet. And I guarantee you saw it. It wasn't about politics and it wasn't about elections. It was simply called the dress. You guys know what I'm talking about? The dress. Okay? Uh, if you haven't seen it, just, go- just Google the dress and it will come up. It was a picture of a single dress, but for some reason, some people saw it as black and blue, and other people saw it as white and gold. To this day, I see this dress as white and gold, and Mallory sees black and blue, and it divided people. It's amazing to me, like really amazing to me, that two people can look at the same object and have completely different perceptions. It's the same with uh, culture and politics. You and I, or you and the person that you're sitting next to right now, can look at the same object in the world and come to different conclusions about it. You may be right and the other person dead wrong. Just like Mallory's wrong with seeing black and blue. It's, It's white and gold. You might be right, the other person might be wrong. You might be wrong, the other person might be right. But we are not called to have the same view on a lot of these issues. We're not called to that. We're not called to have the same view on, on, on racism or how to combat racism. We're not called to have the same views on what to think about global warming or even what to think about gun ownership. The question is how one person who loves guns and the other person who wants more gun control can still gather together and worship God together. How two people can look at the same object and have different perceptions. Thus, firstly, we are called to others-minded unity. Others-minded unity. And I want, I want to make clear, I use those examples because those are examples of what divides a lot of people today, by the way. We might all share very similar views about gun ownership in this room, but 
I wanted to use those examples to to reveal right that those things that divide us. But let's let's jump into scripture. Peter writes, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This verse is what's called a chiasm, right? So um, each part has a counterpart. So uh, you have unity of mind on one end, humble mind on the other. Uh, you have um, sympathy on, on one part and a tender heart on the other. And, and right at the center, you have brotherly love. Now, we all have things that unite us, right? A club unites us, a group might unite us, a meeting, a company, whatever. I mean, right now, I'm united with other Braves fans, okay? I want Braves to win. But the Christian community is uniquely united by brotherly love. The center of that chiasm. Brotherly love. And, and here's the thing. We, we love talk about love, right? Love talk about brotherly love and loving each other. But love is very challenging to maintain. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, he was a German Christian during Nazism. He asked this question. Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. Contrary to all my own opinions and convictions, Jesus Christ will tell me what love toward the brethren really is. And that brotherly love is marked by sympathy, tenderheartedness, and a humble mind. This means laying aside your very real, very strong opinions and your own preferences. It means having your eyes set on advancing the kingdom and not your own kingdom. It means giving a brother or sister in Christ the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> This doesn't mean uniformity. That's the point I'm trying to make. It doesn't mean we're uniform how we see everything, but it means unanimity. It means what Paul writes in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, don't do anything to try to advance your own interests, your own agenda, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what is to keep us being the church? What is going to carry us through? An others-minded unity. Like I said, this is something that we really like to agree with. It sounds great, and it's something that's really easy to preach from the pulpit, but when the re reality hits, this is really, really challenging. An example of this is this week, some guy wrote an article about um, what he called Cracker Barrel Christians versus Whole Foods Christians, right? Whole Foods is that organic natural foods place that, you know, it's stereotyped that rich people shop at or whatever. It's a ridiculous comparison, uh, by the way, but don't, don't go looking for this article. And even if you do try to find this article, just know I totally disagree with uh, 
his conclusions and assumptions. But, but he's basically making this comparison to, to say that like these Whole Foods Christians are, you know, they have all these like motives to, I don't know, undermine the faith or the church or go along with the culture. But it's these, you know, Cracker Barrel Christians that are really holding strong in the truth. My point is, though, that these Christians that he's labeling is that when even when you live a faithful Christian life, and they do, you'll not only meet unbelievers, but fellow Christians who won't hesitate to slander you or slander your views. These, these Christians that he's trying to put in this group are actually faithful, practicing Christians. They just hold different views than he does on different cultural and social issues. That's when this whole unity thing gets challenging, is when a a, a fellow believer slanders you and assigns to you false motives. So that's why, secondly, we are called to grace-giving joy. Grace-giving joy. Peter writes in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this, to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Listen, there's a reason Peter had to write this. And the reason he had to write this in the first place is because of our propensity to revile and to slander. Like, those sound like harsh words and something that we never do, but in reality, that's our propensity. Our natural disposition is not toward unity, but toward division and disunity. One of the greatest temptations I have ever faced is commenting on someone's Facebook post with the same mocking attitude that they might have toward me. What Peter means, reviling for reviling. And if if I'm being honest, if I can be real with you guys, and I I try to be, but I want to emphasize this point, I think that this is one of the greatest threats to the church right now. Because I believe that it is possible that a culture can become hostile to Christianity because that Christianity has actually lost faith in the gospel. The gospel that calls us to die to ourselves and to bless our enemies. Instead, what culture often will get in return is a church just as hostile and just as militant in return as as itself. Culture is angry at the church. Church is angry back at the culture. They're just getting more of themselves. A gnashing of teeth in exchange for gnashing of teeth. So when unbelievers or even fellow Christians revile you and slander you and spit on you, you are called to bless them. Bless them. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That's the definition of what it means to show grace. To give to those what they do not deserve. They don't deserve it. They're undeserving. They're ill-deserving of it. To not only not retaliate in the same way, but to go beyond that and do good to them. And the only way that we can give this kind of grace is if we've received it as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again, 
He wrote, the more we have received, the more we were able to give. And the more meager our brotherly love, the less we were living by God's mercy and love. This is what it means to have a grace-giving joy. Is that we are so filled with God's grace to us that we give it freely. That we might get angry, sure. But eventually we show grace. And, and the thing is, is, is this grace that, that we are filled with, we're, we're filled with this joy at, at receiving God's grace, not only when we're saved, but when we meditate on the gospel daily. That's why it's so important to meditate on the gospel. Because it's a receiving and a washing in God's grace all over again. And we do this, so why? Peter says that you may obtain a blessing. The blessing that Peter has in mind is not um, material blessings, uh, but it's the blessing of eternal life, of, of the blessing of, of final salvation. And Peter is not advocating works-based salvation. Right? You can hear that and think, oh, well, we need to do this that we may obtain a blessing. I mean, that's, that seems like what he's saying. But if you're confused by that by now in First Peter, we need to look into you getting some hearing aids or something, okay? Because that's not what he's saying. But the New Testament is clear that without good works, we don't have eternal life. Good works are evidence that one is truly saved. And one central aspect of those good works this kind of enemy blessing obedience grace giving joy finally we are called to a god centered righteousness Peter quotes uh, in verses 10 to 12, Psalm 37, to strengthen this last point that he's just made, right? This, this uh, blessing that we may receive a blessing. And he writes, he who desires to love life and see good days. All right, this opening, this, this, this opening of this quote is an invitation to live the good life. But not in a materialistic sense, okay? Joel Osteen wrote a book called Every Day of Friday, don't read that book, all right? That's not what Peter has in mind in this or this psalm has in mind. This is an invitation to human flourishing, to participate in eternal life now and in the future. In other words, I've never regretted the times I've been obedient, obedient to Christ. I've never regretted obeying Christ. But every time I disobey Him, I'm filled with misery and regret. Or it leads to misery and regret eventually. Obedience to Christ is what it means to flourish. So if you want the good life, let Him keep His tongue from evil and His lips from speaking deceit. This is one of those classic things that when we think of doing evil... We don't usually think of how we speak, or if we do, it's like cuss words. And the Bible does have stuff to say about vulgar, filthy language. But it also warns against things like slander, 
and gossip and lying and flattery and name-calling, blame-shifting, label-making, and all kinds of other sins that we commit with our tongues. In John 8, the crowds, after Jesus had been teaching them, they said to Jesus, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? What they were doing was assigning to Jesus the worst possible motives and the worst possible character. It amazes me how quickly I can see another Christian assign the worst possible motives and character to another Christian. Don't slander someone, church, especially another believer. The issues that we might disagree with might be strong and heated, sharp, but that doesn't give us permission to slander. It's just all the more reason to love them, isn't it? That's, it's, this is what unity in the church is about. When the Jews and Gentiles got saved and were part of the church together, the Jews were like, no, we must practice the Sabbath. No, we can't eat this kind of meat. We must do this. And the Gentiles were like, no, we don't have to. And there's sharp disagreement. I mean, heated disagreement. And they're still called to be united in Christ. And it's the same with today. Genuine Christian believers can disagree sharply on very, very important things and still be united by the gospel, united by the Spirit, united by Christ. And yes, I mean not essentials, right? We agree on essentials. But these other things are peripheral. Okay, so rather, rather, verse 11 let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Salvation is not just a saving from, it is also a saving to. Salvation is a saving from sin, but also a saving to righteousness. And one of the key differences between someone who is saved and someone who just who assumes that they're saved is whether you cherish God's favor. And I, I don't mean like thinking it's a good thing or agreeing you need it, but truly cherishing God's favor. It's true, right, that God's disposition toward you if you are in Christ does not change, but it is precisely that fact that causes you to cherish it. For the believer, the disposition of their heavenly Father toward them changes who they are. It changes who they love and what they love, and if it changes what they love, then it will change their behavior. Because they will be seeking the pleasure and favor of their Father. They'll love what He loves. And they'll love who He loves. But, there's a warning. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Not only the open sinner, but also those who split and divide churches. Those who sow division. 
those who slander, those who revile, those who refuse to bless their enemies. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And the only way that a church, a church, can survive is with a radical, God-centered, God-pleasing righteousness. And the reality is that we can be united like this is because we are already united to God in Christ. We can forgive the greatest offense toward us because we are already fully forgiven in Christ. We can bless those who curse us because we are already blessed by the one we have cursed. And we don't slander another believer because that believer is already counted righteous in the sight of Christ. You know who else tries to make accusations and make slander against another believer despite their righteousness? Satan. We don't slander another believer because they are righteous in the sight of Christ. The reality is we are already the people of God. We don't need anything more to be the church that God has called us to be. That's what communion is about. It's about how together we are redeemed from sin and Satan forever. And that we are going to be united with one another forever. We are united with each other, with other believers in Springfield, other believers in America, other believers in China, all over the world through space and time. You're united with believers who are gun owners, love gun ownership. You're united with believers who want gun control. You're united with believers who don't see racism at all in culture. And you're united with believers who want to fight racism with their every being. We're united together in Christ because we are forever covered by the blood of Christ. Forever. And by God's grace, we can never shake that. So who are we going to be? What is going to unite us? Let's let communion be that reminder for us. That we are all great, great sinners in the sight of God, but redeemed by Christ. Counted righteous forever. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of who Christ is and what He has done on our behalf. Believer, the work is done for you. The work is done for you. You don't have to cry enough tears you don't have to pray a certain prayer. In Christ, you're free from sin. Free from condemnation. Righteous forever. And united with other believers who share that same idea. And I want to invite everyone to this table this morning. And John, if you'll come help me. This table... It's for those who profess faith in Christ, which means 
If you have not put your faith in Christ and you have not repented of your sin, then don't take it. You don't need to feel ashamed. This is for believers to participate in what God has called us to do. And if you are a Christian and you have been in open sin and you have not been repenting, this is the time of repentance for you. Don't take the supper, the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy manner. Use this time to repent. But the truth is that all of us are sin-sick, sin-weary Christians. And we struggle, and we falter, and we fail. And we can come to the only, only person who can save us. And so I'm going to pray over these elements. We're going to pass out the bread. I'll read Scripture. We'll eat of the bread together. We'll pass out the cup, read Scripture, and we'll drink the cup together. But all of us in this room, let's come to the Lord Jesus who's redeemed us and united us by His blood. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this isn't just a symbolic thing. This is us participating in a very real thing. A very real kingdom because of a very real king. A very alive Savior who is living today, who cares what is happening in this building today, that your people profess your name, profess your blood, and are united around your broken body and your spilled blood for us. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Because without your blood, we would be doomed forever. So God, I pray that you would take these elements and bless them, set them apart for your holy purpose, and may they nourish our faith, deepen our repentance, and foster our obedience and our unity. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing.